This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wars that shaped the world uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. For General Dwight D. Eisenhower and his staff, gathered anxiously amid the 19th century splendor of Southwick House, five miles outside Portsmouth, early reports from Normandy appeared encouraging. Sir, this has come from Utah. It's good. Thank you, Major. The, the bearer of good news is always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Operation Overlord was, so it seemed, going well. It was a German, the Prussian Field Marshal Moltke, who had famously observed that no plan survives its first contact with the enemy. What looks good on paper soon changes appearance when it comes under fire. Nevertheless, on the western flank of the invasion, the Americans were ashore and in control on Utah Beach. Within an hour, German resistance was crushed. To the east, the British and Canadians were also making steady progress across Gold, Juno and Sword beaches. Further inland, news of the three airborne divisions was muddled. But whatever they had or had not achieved, they'd certainly muddled the Germans too. Okay, okay, Captain. What about Omaha? Huh? What news from Omaha? Captain, anything from General Giroux? No, sir, nothing. What about Brad? Anything from General Bradley? No, sir. God damn it! We, we must have Omaha. We must. Without Omaha, we fail. The Germans will be able to pick us off, push us back into the goddamn English Channel. We must have Omaha. Everything depends on it. Everything. In the summer of 1944, Omaha to most Americans was a city in Nebraska. The 6th of June 
was to change that forever. This pleasant curving strip of the Normandy coastline, brought to an abrupt halt by high cliffs at its western end and watched over by a line of bluffs, was about to enter American history. And on its sands was to be written one of its bloodiest chapters. This is Wars That Shaped the World. So the briefing officer gave us a pep talk. More than 1,000 bombers would do their work beforehand. 1,000 bombers. The battleships would blow everything off the map, pillboxes, artillery, mortars, and the barbed wire entanglements. Everything would be blasted to smithereens, a pushover. We were briefed to believe that there would be no living things on the beach, no life of any kind. It would be a piece of cake. You know, we all expected to come back. It would be wrong to say the men heading for Omaha Beach had no idea what lay in wait. The briefings carried out before they'd left England's south coast had been extensive. Indeed, few invasion forces have ever set out as well informed as the men of the 16th and 116th Infantry Regiments. You can see that the defense is heaviest where the little valleys lean inland. These breaks in the bluff are our beach exits, and the key to success in the initial assault will be securing these exits. The defenses include minefields, barbed wire, barbed wire any tank ditches, and interlocking bands of automatic fire concentrated at the exits. They knew exactly what awaited them in terms of the concentration of the German defenses, how well dug in the Germans were, how their positioning offered devastating fields of fire up and down the beach's golden sands. Not one inch was uncovered by 88s or heavy machine guns. But the planners got two things wrong. Very wrong. The defending division is made up of about 40% Germans, many of them partially disabled. But remember, a one-armed soldier is just as capable of pulling the trigger of a fixed machine gun in a pillbox as a two-armed soldier. The remaining 60% of the division is made up of mercenaries, largely Russians with some Poles, Yugoslavs, and other Balkans. They're rough, simple, ignorant men and have little concern for the value of a life. 
They come from a part of the world where fighting has been the main occupation for generations. They will fight to the death. Death was coming to Omaha Beach. Only few on the Allied side expected it to be directed their way with such devastating consequences. As the men of the 1st, known as the Big Red One, and 29th Infantry Divisions were ferried towards the shore, the barrage from the US and British battleships howled over their heads. In some landing craft, men scrambled up onto the engine deck to watch the huge shells crash into the German bunkers. Much of the coast was obscured by clouds of dust and sand. The bombers had already been over, dropping their loads of high explosive. Who could possibly live through all that? That's what the briefing promised. We were so confident the German strong points would have been knocked out that on the way in, most of my men and I were sitting on top of the engine room decking of the landing craft enjoying the show. About a thousand rockets shattered the beach directly where we were land. It looked pretty good. The briefings had assured them these second-rate German troops and their mercenary makeweights would have been all but wiped out, their bunkers shattered. To men in the landing craft, that appeared to be happening right in front of their eyes. Salvo after salvo fell into our positions. Debris and clouds of smoke enveloped us. The air shook. Eyes and ears were filled with dust. Sand ground between teeth. There's no hope for help. We crouched, small and helpless, behind our weapons. I prayed for survival. A comrade stumbled out of the smoke and dust into my position and screamed, Franz, watch out, they're coming. She's coming. They have felt like the end of the world for the Germans, but most of them survived. Not least because the air attacks and the rocket barrage missed their targets. Not a single bomb from 329 B-17s. Not a thousand, as the optimistic briefing officer suggested, landed on Omaha Beach. That's 13,000 bombs in half an hour that fell inland, while the rockets fell short, exploding prettily and pointlessly in the surf. The Air Corps might just as well have stayed home in bed for all the good their bombing concentration did. One officer was warned the landmarks he'd memorized along the beach would be obliterated. When he peered over the ramp of his landing craft, he spotted them all. The 40-minute naval barrage, fired from 10 miles offshore, was more effective. But when it lifted five minutes before H-hour, the defenders were able to hurry into position. These were not the men the planners had expected, but an entirely different and more capable division. And there were three times as many of them as the briefing had stated. The plan called for the beach to be taken by H hour plus 120 minutes, and for tanks and infantry to be moving inland and to the west to relieve the rangers attacking Point to Hawk. A spectacular, and spectacularly courageous assault up a cliff face. Omaha is long and curving, 
ending at its western end with high cliffs. The main beach rose to a shingle bank that led to a low sea wall. Behind the wall was marshy grassland, then steep sand bluffs rising up to 150 feet and dominating the bay. Behind them lay three villages, Vierville, Saint Laurent and Colville. The only way for tanks and vehicles to get off the beach and inland was through five small valleys, each heavily protected by bunkers and gun emplacements. It was the easiest of the beaches to defend, but it had to be used, otherwise the gap between Utah and the British and Canadian beaches to the east would be too great. The beach itself was covered with hedgehogs, metal girders crisscrossed and topped with mines. General Leonard Jarrow, commander of V Corps, wanted to begin the attack before dawn at low tide, but his superiors, Eisenhower, Montgomery and Bradley, insisted on H-hour being 06.30. Besides, they reassured Jero, the bombardment would stun the enemy until his men were ashore. Jero was an inexperienced commander, and Bradley thought he'd only got his command because of his friendship with Eisenhower. But Jero knew enough to fear bombardment and surprise would not be enough. watched nervously as the first landing craft set off at 05.20 to make the hour's ride to the beach. The sea was choppy, waves breaking over the landing craft. More than 10 of the 200 were swamped on the way in. Even worse was to follow for the amphibious tanks, key components of the battle plan. Two companies of Shermans were launched 5,000 yards out, the pre-agreed distance. But it took no account of sea conditions. If landing craft were struggling with the waves, what chance would the cumbersome tanks have with their lower standing in the water? Absolutely insane, said one observer of the decision. 27 of the 32 tanks sank. Two reached the beach. Three couldn't be launched, so were taken all the way in. 33 tank crewmen drowned. It was the first of the day's disasters on Omaha. The plan was going wrong before a single American soldier had set foot on the sand. As the barrage lifted, there was an uncanny silence along the beach, broken only by the sound of the landing craft engines straining against the waves and the sound of those waves breaking on the beach. On board the craft, most men could see little but the helmets in front of them, and above that, the landing ramp and grey sky overhead. They were cold, wet, the men's seasick swirled around their boots in ankle-deep water. The air smelt of vomit. I was so seasick I thought I would die. In fact, I wish I had. I was exhausted. They waited for the Germans to open fire, but all was quiet. Perhaps the confidence of the officers who'd briefed them back in England was going to be proved right. Perhaps the bombardment and barrage and rockets had made mincemeat of the enemy. All they'd need to do was get off these damn hellhole landing craft and walk up the beach and into France. Perhaps. Soon, we became conscious of pinking noises near us, and when a couple of men toppled to the deck, we became conscious of the fact that we were being fired at with real bullets by a very much alive enemy. 
The plan was beginning to go up in the smoke and dust, hiding landmarks from the Royal Navy coxswain steering the landing craft. A northwesterly wind and rising tide was pushing them off target. The craft's flat bottoms made it difficult to combat wind and tide, especially amid waves of up to six feet. Only one company in the entire first wave landed where planned. At last, they reached the beach. With a crash, the ramps dropped to the sand. Some were short of the beach proper, on sandbanks, with deeper water on the other side. As our boat touched sand and the ramp went down, I became a visitor to hell. We dropped the ramp, and then all hell broke loose. The soldiers in the boat received a hail of machine gun bullets. The lieutenant was immediately killed, shot through the head. It was the first time I shot at living men. I don't remember exactly how it was. The only thing I know is that I went to my machine gun and I shot and I shot and I shot. As the ramp went down, we were getting direct fire right into our craft. My three squad leaders in front and others were hit. Some men climbed over the side. Sailors got it. I got off in the water only ankle deep. I tried to run, but suddenly the water was up to my hips. I crawled to hide behind the steel beach obstacle. Bullets hit off it and through my pack. Missing me, others hit more of my men. I shut everything out and concentrated on following the men in front of me down the ramp and into the water. I was unable to come up. I knew I was drowning and made a futile attempt to unbuckle the flamethrower harness. Someone grabbed me and, half drowned, coughing water and dragging my feet, I began walking to the chaos ahead. The machine gun fire made a sip sip sound like someone sucking on their teeth. To this day, I don't know why I didn't dump the flamethrower and run like hell for shelter, but I didn't. Harry Parley believes he was the only flamethrower operator to get off the beach still on his own two feet. It was carnage and chaos across Omaha Beach. Across Charlie Scepter, Dog Green, Dog White, Dog Red, Easy Green, Easy Red, Fox Green and Fox Red. All eight sectors had become killing zones. I remember floundering in the water with my hand up in the air, trying to get my balance when I was first shot through the palm of my hand, then through the knuckle. Private Henry Witt was rolling over toward me. I remember him saying, Sergeant, they're leaving us here to die like rats. Just to die like rats. Many were hit in the water, good swimmers or not. Screams for help came from men hit and drowning under ponderous loads. There were dead men floating in the water and there were live men acting dead, letting the tide take them in. The bodies of my buddies were washing ashore and I was the one, live body and among so many of my friends. All of whom have died. In many cases, very severely blown to pieces. Bullets were splashing right in front of my nose, on both sides and everywhere. Right then and there, I thought of every sin I had committed and never prayed so hard in my life. Sergeant Pilgrim Robertson had a gaping wound in the upper right corner of his forehead. He was walking crazily in the water without his helmet. Then I saw him get down on his knees and start praying with his rosary beads. And at this moment, the Germans 
cut him in half with their deadly crossfire. Ahead of them lay the open beach. The men were bedraggled and weighed down by heavy equipment. Bodies numb, minds numb. Shouts of medic, medic echoed up and down the beach, often in vain. And all the time, the crossfire rained down on Omaha. Everything seemed like slow motion. The way the men moved under all their equipment. Overloaded, we didn't have a chance. And I was so tired, I could hardly drag myself along. I crawled to hide behind a steel beach obstacle. Bullets hit off it. Others hit more of my men. I took a head count and there was only 11 of us from the 30 on the craft. As the tide came in, we took turns running to the water's edge to drag the wounded men to cover. Some of the wounded were hit again on the beach. More men crowding up. More people being hit by shellfire. As soon as a landing craft ramp splashed down, an MG-42 would home in on it. Usually, the unit's officer was the first man off, and so the first to be gunned down. Men further back in the craft would see their friends and comrades riddled with bullets before they'd even set foot in France. Many leapt over the sides instead of heading down the ramp. They found themselves in water turned ready brown with blood, and they found themselves in water from ankle high to nine feet deep. Men drowned as they desperately punched at their life jackets, trying to get them to inflate as their kit dragged them down. Get out of the water unscathed, and you were faced with hell and hell. Men fell everywhere. There was nowhere to hide. He screamed for a medic. An aid man moved quickly to help him, and he was also shot. The medic lay next to the GI, and both of them were screaming until they died a few minutes later. I saw Private Dittmar of Fairfield, Connecticut hold his chest, and I heard him yell, I'm hit. I'm hit, I'm hit. I hit the ground and watched him as he continued to go forward about 10 more yards. He tripped over an obstacle, <gasps> and as he fell, his body made a complete turn, and he lay sprawled on the damp sand with his head facing the Germans, his face looking skyward. He was yelling, Mother! Mother! Mom! Mom! The natural curve of the beach helped turn it into a killing zone, with the Germans able to fire both from the front and enfilade. The men sought any shelter they could. Most of the handful of tanks that made it ashore were quickly destroyed, but their steel carcasses at least offered a chance to cover. The Navy engineers began to blow the beach obstacles, ordering cowering GIs out of the way. But the tide was rising and many of the hedgehogs remained in place to threaten future waves of landing craft. The next wave was on the way. The boat seemed to disintegrate. Bodies, parts of bodies, debris, rifles, everything seemed to mushroom upward and outward like some large flower. An indescribable beauty, yet terrible. It was terrible. We were horror-struck watching it. I have never prayed so much in all my life. It was awful. People dying all over the place. The wounded unable to move and being drowned by the incoming tide and 
boats spurting madly as succeeding waves try to get in. I've never seen so many brave men who did so much. Many would go way back and try to gather in the wounded, and themselves get killed. A headless torso flew a good 50 feet through the air and landed with a sickening thud near us. Some men vomited. All were heartsick. The first wave staggered into the shelter of the sea wall. Sections, platoons, companies had ceased to exist as functioning units. The men lay and watched as the next wave approached. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We waded to the sand and threw ourselves down, and the men were frozen, unable to move. My radio man had his head blown off three yards from me. The beach was covered with bodies. Men with no legs, no arms. God, it was awful. I don't know how many men I do not know how many men I shot. I almost emptied an entire landing craft. The sea was red around it and I could hear an American officer shouting hysterically. Traumatized men filled the beach. The second wave had now arrived and were suffering much as the first. Officers, the few that hadn't been killed or wounded, yelled at their cowering men. You guys think you're soldiers? They were beat up and shocked. Many of them had forgotten they had firearms to use. And still, the German fire poured down. From in front and the flanks, every way you looked. There was no way out. Man after man fell to the sand. The MG42s in the German strongholds fired at a rate of 1,200 rounds a minute. Mortars joined in. Snipers picked off officers, NCOs and radio operators, anybody who looked important. It took Gillingham's chin off, including the bomb. 
He tried to hold his chin in place as he ran toward the shingle. He made it, and Bill Hawks and I gave him his morphine shot. We stayed with him for approximately 30 minutes until he died. The entire time he remained conscious and aware that he was dying. He was propped up by his buddies who were frantically trying to stop the bleeding. They were stuffing towels in his neck, trying pressure points to no avail. He smiled at his buddies, waved his hand in a gesture so long, died so fast it was as though a hand passed over his face. I raised my head to curse the Germans when an 88 shell exploded about 20 yards in front of me, hitting me in my left cheek. It felt like being hit with a baseball bat, only the results were much worse. My upper jaw was shattered, the left cheek torn open. My upper lip was cut in half, the roof of my mouth was cut up, and teeth and gums were lying all over my mouth. Blood poured freely from the gaping wound. In all, 19-year-old Harold Baumgarten was wounded five times on Omaha Beach, the last seeing him shot in the leg as he was finally carried away on a stretcher. He survived. The few remaining Shermans, despite being a focus for German fire, began to run shuttles up and down the beach to give men shelter. Brigadier General Norman D. Cota and Colonel Charles Cannum sheltered behind one tank. Cannum had been lucky when he landed on Dog White Sector around 0730 hours. His automatic rifle had been shot out of his hands and a bullet passed through his right wrist. He crouched in the surf as it was bandaged up, then drew his Colt 45 and ran up the beach, clutching it in his left hand. Cota and Cannum took in the carnage and confusion all around. Few were where they were supposed to be. The field artillery was being swamped in their amphibious vehicles. Most of the deadly obstacles had still to be destroyed. And all along the water's edge, the dead and dying, the wreckage of the first two waves. As the two officers discussed options, a large landing craft blew up behind them. A GI carrying a flamethrower had been hit and promptly incinerated. The burning fuel from the flamethrower set the craft alight and the ammunition it carried exploded. It was to burn for over 18 hours. Kota and Cannon each took a deep breath and left the shelter of the tank. They split up to look for a way off the beach. Old Hatchet Face, as the tall, wiry Cannon was known by his troops, waved his pistol at the men he passed, cowering in what shelter they could find. Colonel Cannon came by with his right arm in a sling and a Colt 45 in his left hand. He was yelling and screaming for the officers to get the men off the beach. Get the hell off this damn beach and go kill some krauts. There was an officer taking refuge from an enemy mortar barrage. Right in front of me, Colonel Cannon screamed, get your ass out of there and show some leadership. To another lieutenant, he roared, Get these men off their asses and over that wall and go fight some krauts. At the eastern end of the beach, 47-year-old Colonel George Taylor rallied his men. Taylor had crawled ashore under a hail of fire at 8 a.m., reached the seawall, and come to a decision. The only people left on this beach are their dead and those that are going to die. Now let's get the hell out of here! And Taylor did just that. 
leading men less than half his age in a charge up the bluffs. Often it was junior officers and NCOs who took the lead, galvanized by an initial rocket delivered by Taylor or Cannon or Cota. As with the paratroopers scattered inland, many veterans believe it was low-level command that made the difference on Omaha, rather than the actions of more senior commanders. Lieutenant Vandervoort said, let's go, goddamn, there ain't no use staying here, we're all gonna get killed. The first thing he did was run up to a gun emplacement and throw a grenade into the embrasure. He returned with five or six prisoners. So then we thought, hell, if he can do it, why can't we? And that's how we got off the beach. When you talk about combat leadership under fire on the beach of Normandy, I don't see how the credit can go to anyone other than the company-grade officers and senior non-commissioned officers who led the way. Slowly, ever so slowly, the Americans began to pull themselves together. The 2nd Battalion of the 16th Infantry made the first breakthrough, scaling the bluffs between Saint Laurent and Colville. And crucially, further to the east, the British had come ashore on Gold Beach, preventing the Germans from sending reinforcements to Omaha. Grenade, now. Pillbox cleared. Back on Omaha, General Cota fashioned a plan. Under covering fire, Bangalore torpedoes were pushed through the German wire. The first man through was shot. The rest were reluctant to follow, so Cota led the way in person, watched by his aide, Lieutenant Shea. General Cota personally supervised placing a Bangalore torpedo for blowing the wire. Finally, the men of the 116th began to climb up the bluffs and off the beach. It was one of the first three men to go through the wire. At the head of a mixed column of troops, General Cota threaded his way to the foot of the high ground beyond the beach and started the troops up the high ground where they could bring effective fire to bear on the enemy positions. The 51-year-old Cota returned to his command post only for a mortar bomb to explode nearby, killing the two men next to Cota and hurling his radio operator up the hill. Communications were all but non-existent. The Germans targeted any radio operator with a hail of bullets. That morning alone, one German machine gunner fired close to 15,000 rounds before he ran out of ammunition. And the noise, always the noise, naval gunfire, small arms, artillery and mortar fire, aircraft overhead, engine noise, the shouting and the cries of the wounded. No wonder some people couldn't handle it. Ten miles offshore on the USS Ancon, General Jarrow was getting worried. He'd only fragments of information, none of it good. He messaged General Bradley, his boss, on the nearby USS Augusta. So grave was the situation, they considered abandoning the beach and switching the next waves to Utah or even to the British sector. I gained the impression that our forces had suffered an irreversible catastrophe, that there was little hope we could force the beach. Privately, I considered evacuating the beachhead. I agonized over the withdrawal decision, praying that our men could hang on. Bradley's prayers began to be answered. Amid the chaos on Omaha, there were signs of progress. It was potluck. Some units suffered relatively light casualties, landing in less well-defended sections, and were able to get off the beach, over the seawall, and up the bluffs. 
One company pushed inland and reached a German stronghold at saint Laurel. There, one officer was shouting an order when a piece of shrapnel went through one cheek and out the other. A short time later, he was seen still shouting orders with blood spouting from his cheeks. Overall, the situation remained chaotic. The beach was a mix of burning vehicles and abandoned kit, with bodies rolling up on the waves. Damaged landing craft littered the shoreline, while further out, others, packed with anxious GIs of the supporting waves, circled, unsure what to do. The role of the Navy destroyers was to prove crucial in swinging the day's momentum. Eight American and three British destroyers came in as close as they could. Hulls scraping the seabed and directed a non-stop bombardment on the German positions. Their gun barrels became so hot, they had to be hosed down. As they bombarded so, more men, and crucially, tanks, began to make it onto the beach. There, Kota was still trying to bring about order. He returned to the riflemen he'd sent up the bluffs and found them pinned down. He drew his pistol and shouted. Okay, now let's see what you're made of! Kota led the charge in person. Slowly, a mixed force from the 29th Division and the 5th Ranger Battalion made their way along a lane to Vierville-sur-Mer and worked a position overlooking the exit from the beach. Fire! As the morning wore on, more and more men found their way onto the bluffs. They became known as Kota's Bastard Brigade. Such was the mishmash of different units. By midday, they were beginning to push inland, now having to tread carefully through minefields. He'd stepped on a mine and it had blown off half of his right foot. He was arranged fairly comfortably and was smoking a cigarette. He warned almost everyone who came by about a mine that was embedded in the ground about a yard from him. Kota returned to the beach once more, a man on a mission. He and his men sent a German prisoner through a small minefield, and they followed carefully in his footsteps. There, he found an abandoned flail tank, conjured a volunteer to drive it, while he walked along the beach cajoling and commanding riflemen to get up and get going. He was furious at the sight of some troops pausing to eat K-rations amid the dead and dying. Slowly but surely, more and more men were coming ashore. By 12.30, nearly 19,000 had been landed on Omaha. A force was assembled to attack Colville, where they found a number of the German defenders were drunk. Numbers were beginning to tell. 
Units of the 1st and 29th Divisions leapfrogged through and pushed inland to attack Saint Laurent. Gradually, the fire on the beach began to slacken, and the engineers could set to work properly clearing the obstacles and pushing aside burning wrecks. Some of the engineers said they struggled to eat for days afterwards because of the smell of burned flesh. The beach was covered with the wounded, some of whom had been lying in the sand and waves since before seven that morning. It was now the afternoon. The medics set to work. I saw one young soldier pale, crying in obvious pain, with his intestines out under his uniform. There was nothing I could do except inject morphine and comfort him. He soon died. Further inland in the bluffs, some men were to lie all night in the minefields as they waited for paths to be cleared to bring them out. Progress was being made. One group staggered into Vierville-sur-Mer, grateful to be off the beach, where they came across General Cota, spinning his 45 around a finger like he'd stepped out of a western. Where the hell have you been, boys? shouted Cota. Shortly after one o'clock, General Jarrow was at last able to send some better news to General Bradley, his boss. Troops formerly pinned down on Easy Red, Easy Green, Fox Red, advancing up heights behind beaches. Down below, the last German resistance around the Vierville draw was extinguished, and tanks began to get through to the heights around the beach. Cota ordered his men to dig in. Colonel Canham set up his headquarters in a large chateau. But there was still time for one final disaster at the Omaha beachhead. Naval bombardment had helped the American troops take Vierville. With that done, the Navy guns turned to Colville, not realizing it had already been captured. 64 men were killed by their own guns in the bombardment that followed. At 17.21, 11 hours after the first wave landed, a radio message reached Jarrow that wheeled traffic could be sent to the beach. The relieved Jarrow set out at once to get ashore. When he landed, he was taken up the beach in an armoured bulldozer to set up his core command post. It was 500 yards from the front line. His staff were shocked by the sight that awaited them. The beach was just a complete shambles. It was like an inferno. There were bodies everywhere and wounded being attended to. As I went by a tank, I heard people screaming for morphine. The tank was on fire and they were burning to death. There wasn't a thing I could do about it and it was pretty nerve-shaking. There are no definitive casualty numbers for those who died during the initial assault on Omaha Beach. Numbers were given out for 24-hour periods. The numbers of dead and wounded were not as high as the early morning disasters had suggested they might eventually be, nor even as high as some of the pre-invasion fears. Colonel Canham had estimated ahead of the landings that two out of every three of his men would become a casualty. 3,000 French civilians were killed in the first 24 hours of Overlord, double the numbers of American dead. The total number of U.S. dead for the first 24 hours was 1,465. But for individual units that landed first on Omaha, losses were appalling. A company of the 116th Infantry lost 100 killed out of 215, with many more wounded. 
it was a casualty rate higher than that of the Eastern Front. Many years later, General Bradley wrote of that day, Omaha Beach was a nightmare. Now it brings pain to recall what happened there on June 6, 1944. I've returned many times to honor the valiant men who died on that beach. They should never be forgotten, nor should those who live to carry the day by the slimmest of margins. Every man who set foot on Omaha Beach that day was a hero. For the men ashore, huddled in hastily scraped dugouts, exhausted after their longest day, it was only the beginning. Captain James Roberts ate his K rations, then wrapped himself in a blanket. Around midnight, when things seemed to be fairly quiet, I remember thinking, man, what a day this has been. If every day is gonna be as bad as this, I'll never survive the war. Next, on wars that shaped the world. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever anticipate that D-Day would find me dashing along the lanes of Normandy, endeavoring, not very successfully, to control a frightened horse with one hand, gripping a map case in the other, and wearing a tin hat and black overalls. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.